You're listening to A World of Black Writers from the Hurston Wright Foundation. Welcome to A World of Black Writers. I'm Hurston Wright Foundation board member David Whetstone, and our guest today is Dr. Patricia Bell Scott. She's Professor Emerita of Women's Studies in Human Development and Family Science at the University of Georgia. We're going to focus on her book, The Firebrand and the First Lady, A Portrait of a Friendship, Polly Murray, Eleanor Roosevelt, and the Struggle for Social Justice from Penguin Books. Welcome, Dr. Bell Scott. It's a pleasure to have you with us on A World of Black Writers. My pleasure to be here. And these are the two most profound women of American history and society, Paula Murray and Eleanor Roosevelt. You put it right up front at the outset of the book that you've had personal encounters which have caused you to undertake writing this book. There was a direct challenge from one of the subjects, was it not? I was in the midst of several uh, projects having to do with black women. One of them was the founding of the journal Sage. And I had written Polly Murray to ask if she would be willing and interested in writing a piece for our inaugural issue. And she wrote me back that she could not write a piece for that issue, but that she was willing to serve on the advisory board. She also said in that letter that she was very encouraged by the efforts that I was making with my colleagues. And she also said that it was really important for me to get to know the names of the veterans on whose shoulders I stood. And at the time, I did not know anything about her friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt, but she mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt in this letter and the work that the two of them had done together on the President's Commission for the Status of Women. And she said to me that she would be willing to write something for the journal that I was doing in about 12 months. She said she was trying to finish her autobiography. Well, little did I know that she was ill at the time she wrote to me and that she would be dead in less than 18 months. But that indeed did happen, and I was devastated when I got the news because I was making notes of things I wanted to talk to her about after that time period passed for which she wanted people to just kind of leave her alone to finish her work. And it was about nine years later when I happened to be at the Schlesinger Library, which is the place where her papers are housed and decided that I would take a look at the first file containing the letters between Eleanor Roosevelt and Polly Murray, that I happened to look at that first file, and I immediately knew that this was something I was supposed to do. Now, mind you, I was in the midst of another project, but I just had the presence of mind to close the folder on the project that I was working on, and I started that day working on this book. It was several years later when I was looking at a folder. I was actually trying to study the background for uh, the memoir that Polly Murray had written. Proud Shoes. Proud Shoes in 1956. And so I was actually about to write the introduction to a new edition of that. 
and discovered in a letter that she wrote to a friend of hers that she was making notes for her future biographer. And that person, of course, had not been selected and was unknown, but that she was putting these notes aside with the notion that that biographer might like to start his or her biography of Pauli Murray looking at the University of North Carolina case and the friendship that developed subsequently with Eleanor Roosevelt, which was precisely what I was doing, and that was several years after I had started. So I have um, come to the conclusion that the letter that I received in December of 1983 directing me to get to know something about the veterans on whose shoulders I stood, not only was a directive telling me what I needed to do, but also pointing me in a specific direction to her friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. I had always been interested in Pauli Murray and Eleanor Roosevelt, but really didn't know much beyond what she had written in her autobiography about the friendship. So I feel as if I was called to do this. And Dr. Bell Scott, if you allow me, I'm of the generation, and certainly you are too, to know who Pauli Murray was, the granddaughter of a mulatto slave, writer, activist, journalist. But with both Pauli Murray and Eleanor Roosevelt, it is an understatement to say they were magisterial in their impact into American society. Pauli Murray went on to be a, a very active theologian, one of the co-founders of NOW, and the list of their accomplishments and undertakings is practically endless, to say the least. Be that as it may, let's point to when they first meet each other. Can you tell us about when they first encountered each other? Well, they first encountered each other in a letter, and the letter was Uh, written in 1938, and the catalyst for the letter was a speech that Franklin Roosevelt gave at the University of North Carolina, praising the school for its liberal tradition, and he just heaped all kinds of praise on the university. And unbeknownst to him, Pauli had applied about a month before he went to the university to give this speech, and uh, she would be rejected on racial grounds. And she read the text of his speech. First of all, she heard it on the radio, and then she read the text of his speech in the New York Times, and she was simply beside herself. So she sat down to express herself on the page, which was her preferred mode of dealing with complex issues. And so she wrote him a, a lengthy letter describing what the South was like and basically calling him to task and asking him, you know, to put his energy where he had placed all his words. And she decided to send a copy of this letter to Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt responded rather quickly. Franklin Roosevelt forwarded his letter to the Office of Education, and it was over a month before Polly heard from him. But it was Eleanor Roosevelt's thoughtful response that really opened the door and gave Polly hope about being able to speak to Eleanor Roosevelt directly from the heart about issues. I should also say, too, that prior to Polly writing this letter, she had encountered Eleanor Roosevelt at Camp Terra, which was a camp for unemployed women during the Depression. 
And Eleanor Roosevelt had been the primary catalyst for the establishment of this camp. And she would go to the camp periodically to inspect it, to talk to the women and girls who were residents to see how they were faring. And she appeared unexpectedly on one Sunday afternoon. And Polly was sitting outside the dining area when the First Lady came up. And at the time, none of the the women, the campers, expected to see the First Lady. It was an unannounced visit. And she walked right past Polly and into an area to address the campers. And Polly, who was innately shy, uh, pretended to be reading a newspaper. And she peeped over the edges of the paper at the First Lady and noticed how tall she was, noticed how casually she was dressed. Notice how friendly she was and unpretentious she was, but didn't say anything. And there's no doubt in my mind that the First Lady noticed Polly because the camp had very few women of color there. And Eleanor Roosevelt had already written to the office which handled admissions to the camp to say that she had heard from one young woman when she was there that it was being communicated that they did not want black women. And Eleanor had written back to the people handling admissions that she expected black women to be admitted like anyone else. So I'm sure she was taking mental note and she saw that Polly, who was one of uh, maybe a handful of young black women there, I'm sure she noticed this young woman sitting in a corner in pants, pretending to read a newspaper. And by all accounts of Eleanor in the newsletter that I've seen published by the camp, Eleanor always walked up to campus to speak to them. But probably because Polly's shyness was so palpable, she just walked by. She didn't say anything because Polly was really hiding behind this newspaper in peeping out at the at the first lady as she walked by. So she had already had that encounter even though they didn't speak directly. And she remembered that when she wrote her this was really a protest letter to Franklin Roosevelt. And that encouraged her to reach out to Eleanor Roosevelt because she had been really solicitous of the women at the camp. So when they first met, Polly Murray would be twenty four and Eleanor Roosevelt around forty nine years of age. Yes. How does that reflect it in their letters of exchange and subsequent meeting and coming to know each other? What's important about the age difference is that Polly was about the same age as Eleanor Roosevelt's children. So Polly did not relate to her, even though their friendship lasted for nearly uh, three decades until Eleanor Roosevelt's death. Polly always related to her because she saw Eleanor as a kind of surrogate mother. Polly also represented the newer generation, so she was not deferential to Eleanor Roosevelt in the same way as uh, black veteran civil rights leaders were. And as a young woman representing this sort of new generation of blacks, Polly took it upon herself to challenge Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt in her letters. I mean, she wasn't disrespectful, but the veteran leaders considered her brash and impolitic at times. 
If we can so, go further, I'm curious about how the First Lady received their growing and developing relationship and, and her direct comments about life in these United States. Well, it is Eleanor to whom I would have to give credit for part of the title. It is Eleanor who refers to Polly as a firebrand. And in one article she where she's talking about her friends who are African-American, she makes the comment that one of her best friends is a young Negro lawyer, Polly Murray, of whom she is very fond. And she says that Polly has been a firebrand and has done some unwise things in the past, but has come along and that she thinks that she has really made a contribution. So she describes her as someone who who has always been a firebrand in personality, but that over time, these are my words, she has matured. So I take Eleanor's term for Polly and have used it in the title. She describes Polly as a firebrand. And it is this tension that I saw in the early days of their relationship, Polly, this impatient youth, and Eleanor Roosevelt, this pragmatic veteran who is really urging Polly to be patient It is that that really puts tension in their relationship. Over time, what I feel like I see and try to convey to readers in the book is Polly, who starts out as a young radical on the left, moves toward center but never really center. Eleanor Roosevelt, who starts out perhaps right of center, moving toward left of center. So they have this effect on each other where they converge, they move toward each other. So that Eleanor Roosevelt, who early on is urging Polly not to disobey segregation laws, Eleanor doesn't approve of them. She disagrees with them. But her view is that you try to work within the system to change the law as opposed to disobeying it. Polly's view as a young radical is the law is unjust, it's immoral, and so you don't obey it. So Polly gets arrested for sitting in the white section of a public bus. By the time Eleanor dies in 1962, she herself is disobeying laws by meeting with the young civil rights activists in the early 60s in integrated settings in the South where it is still against the law for blacks and whites to mingle socially. And I would argue that it is Eleanor's friendship with Pauli and other young black radicals, liberals. It is that friendship that helps to move her toward the left and helps her become the um, the forthright and courageous liberal first lady that she is now lauded for. She didn't get there all by herself, and she wasn't born that way. There are people, and I would say Polly is one of those who helps socialize her in the direction, just as Eleanor helps to socialize Polly. For example, in 1932, when Polly cast her first vote in the presidential election, she votes for the socialist Norman Thomas. By the time she gets to her senior years, Polly has become a voting Democrat. So she moves from voting on the Socialist Party ticket to voting Liberal Party in New York City to voting in the Democratic Party, though she always describes herself 
as an independent Democrat. So she's always willing to vote for someone who is not a Democrat. She's not, she's not blindly loyal to the party, but it was huge for her to be able to vote for the Southerner Lyndon Johnson because she remembers him in a period when she could never have voted for him. You know, that calls to mind one of the acknowledgments that we should make is that Polly Murray was one of the people noted for coining the term Jane Crow. And for our younger listeners, maybe you can explain that for us. Polly Murray went to Howard University School of Law with the explicit goal of becoming a civil rights attorney. And in the early 1940s, when Polly went to Howard, it was called the Capstone of Negro Education, and it was the training ground for uh, the NAACP Legal Brain Trust. Thurgood Marshall went there. Charles Hamilton Houston was the dean of the law school. But the interesting thing that happened for Polly was that when she got there, she found that she was one of two women in her class, and she would be the only woman to finish in her class. And she also discovered that many of her professors, all of whom were male, did not think that women were capable of doing law, and she was the subject of jokes and jives. And what she writes is that that experience taught her to see civil rights in a broader way. She went to law school to become a civil rights attorney, and she says in her memoir that she graduated an unabashed feminist as well. One of the things that really got to Polly was that she wanted to be a member of the legal fraternity, which is honorific. And even though she graduated at the top of her class, she could not be a member of this fraternity because the rules said that one must be male. And so she began to look at this issue of sex discrimination and in her graduate work in law began to look at how it affected women's education and how it affected women's employment opportunities. And she coined the term in one of her legal essays, and she, Polly, is credited as having written the first law review essay on sex discrimination. And in that essay, she coined the term Jane Crow to describe discrimination that represents the intersection of race and sex discrimination, which is what African-American women and other women of color experience, discrimination that is linked to race and linked to sex or gender. Both women are women of letters, um, not just merely of correspondence, but their actual acts of writing guided people, encouraged actions. I'm wondering how we could just capture that understanding of the importance of writing to both these women, not only between each other, but what does it mean as far as them engaging certain members of the public? One of the things that they both did is that they wrote for newspapers. And Polly did quite a bit of writing in the 40s for the black and leftist press. And those pieces were protest pieces often that spoke of housing discrimination, and they were important because they disclosed practices that needed to be exclosed. They helped to galvanize boycotts. 
when she was at Howard, she in um, the Howard University chapter of the NAACP organized one of the earliest boycotts against segregated eateries in Washington, D.C. That was important because it brought attention to that and it served what she wrote in those articles and the training documents they wrote found their way into the hands of the next generation that mounted the journey of reconciliation bus rides into the South, and then they were passed on to the activists in the 1960s. And Eleanor Roosevelt, in her writing, her My Day column in particular, often stirred attention and action on several key issues. I mean, think of, for example, about the article she wrote about the DAR's refusal to allow Marian Anderson to perform at Constitution Hall. That caught the attention of the nation, embarrassed the DAR, and then groups organized that Lincoln Memorial Concert, which still is important when we think about what the moment it created in the nation. The other thing that uh, I wanted to do with this book was to also call attention to, to Pauli's writing as a poet and also as someone who, who created beautiful uh, literary nonfiction. Her family memoir, Proud Shoes, was a forerunner to what we consider to be just essential in terms of modern or contemporary literary nonfiction. I say that because at the time that it was published, some of the criticism of it, for example, there was this discussion in one Mississippi newspaper that it didn't have footnotes, that it read like a novel. And now when we think about what publishers and what readers want in memoir is they want it to read like a novel. We want it to have a lyrical ring. And that is precisely what you get when you read Prout Shoes, which is why it has now found a new audience. So Pauli, I think in particular, has made a contribution as a writer, I think because she was in so much of an activist or became known as an activist. There is more attention to that aspect of her life and not as much, uh, which I hope will be rectified, to her contributions as a writer and as a thinker. Well, you have the privilege of getting to know her and teaching her work. I would just like to remind listeners of this podcast that you yourself have had a great dedication to the narrative of black women throughout time in the United States. Patricia Bell Scott is the author of Flat-Footed Truths, Telling Black Women's Lives, in which you were the editor. Life Notes, Personal Writings by Contemporary Black Women, Double Stitch, Black Women Write About Mothers and Daughters, and you're the co-editor of what has to be one of the most necessary things in Black Women's Studies. All the women are white, all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. And for my own personal sake, but also on behalf of the Hurston Wright Foundation, I salute you for your work. Thank you, Dave. It is so important for people of African descent, wherever they are on the planet, to tell their story. Narrative, the actual actions of writing, and the results thereof are so, so critical. What is your perspective on us telling our story? Well, I take 
my lead from Polly Murray, who frequently would say that writing was the process of coming to know oneself, in her particular case, knowing her family heritage, knowing her feelings, knowing her thoughts. And to do that, she was, and I say this with fondness, an obsessive journal keeper. And I think that that is something that we as a people would benefit from enormously. And I don't necessarily mean that it has to be something fancy or formal, but just the practice of uh, having a conversation with yourself on the page regularly, I think helps in terms of self-knowledge, helps in terms of personal growth, helps in terms of learning to be a better thinker. So I think that is really a lesson to be learned from her life. And it is in her journals that I have seen the seeds for her major works, the seed for Proud Shoes, was planted in a journal diary, oh, 20 years before she actually began to focus and sit down on it. Very frequently, if we don't capture a thought, if we don't capture it before it disappears, it may be lost because we get distracted or because we simply forget. That's an important lesson that I see, that almost every major work I've I see that she has produced had its beginning in some way in her personal writing. You've been listening to A World of Black Writers, and we've been talking to Patricia Bell Scott. Dr. Bell Scott is the author of The Firebrand and the First Lady, A Portrait of a Friendship, Holly Murray, Eleanor Roosevelt, and The Struggle for Social Justice. Patricia, thank you. My pleasure, David.